Hey there, and welcome to the Smart and Simple Matters show with your host, Joel Zeslovsky. This is a funky episode, funky fresh, and it is also episode number 123. You know, I love it when I can create a podcast episode that's almost guaranteed to reward your time and attention. Sometimes this Smart and Simple Matters show thing, the gratitude is rather one-sided. I give it to you to honor your commitment to listen the whole way through. Other times I hear from you that you are practically shouting your equivalent of sweet, sassy, molassy while you had your brain rocked by a specific episode. I have the distinct feeling that gratitude will be flowing mightily in all directions for this one because I recorded a chat with my friend and a slightly intimidating human in the best way possible, a man named Christopher Carter, best known to everybody as simply KC. In this episode, I hide nothing about my passionate bromance with this epic human, He's just one of those people that when you meet him or become aware of him for the first time, you just think to yourself, who who is this guy? It's plenty hard to score higher on the extrovert or enthusiasm scale than I do, but sometimes Casey blows me out of the water by orders of magnitude. Not that we're competing or anything. I could, seriously, I could give you hours of context about who he is, what he represents, and why he's so special to many people, including me. But uh, I feel like you'll get a good sense of that when you listen to us in a few minutes. Let me just say up front that our conversation about the sacred life ingredients that must be present for full life integration, why self-care is about consistency more than duration, and Casey's concept of a lens statement and how that enhances or diminishes everything you experience, and even stuff like the importance of the numbers 1, 5, 10. This episode is everything I hoped it could be. I've been waiting for this conversation to bring to you for years, and finally got around to it. I'm just so excited for me, for you, for the greater world. I... oh Now... The audio quality, it is a little substandard with some minor distortion in a few places. I say, skip this episode or segments of this episode at your own risk. You will go minutes, maybe seconds between things that make you say, whoa. I really believe it's worth absorbing every last drop of Casey goodness you can get. He's challenged me in so many needed ways over the past few years, so I will challenge you, see if you can avoid getting amped up when he's building like a juggernaut as he reads part of his current lens statement during the episode. I I don't think it's possible to feel at least 89.37% stoked when he does that, but you, of course, will be the judge. I am so, so ready. You, I bet you're so, so ready too. Here 
we go. KC is like a shaken up can of soda. Calm on the inside until you pop the top and all of a sudden his effervescence is everywhere. He helps people like me get started with and sustain their meditation habit, helps organizations optimize their employee experience, and has this rad framework for full life integration, which we're definitely going to be talking about. Casey has also been featured in Business Insider, on stage at Wisdom 2.0, and many Good Life Project events, and at least unofficially in every place that you'll ever find him. This dude is featured everywhere. You show up and his presence will be known. K to the C, I am so freaking rad to have you on for chat. Welcome, buddy. Oh, thanks, man. Well, that was an epic. I'm like, I can't wait to meet this guy. He sounds incredible. Thank he is incredible. And uh, people will start realizing that slowly and maybe suddenly pretty soon. Let's, uh, let's give people a little bit of backstory, some context before we dive into some deeper stuff. I like to start a conversation with something I call the seeds of awesomeness because I want to help people understand how you came to be the person that you are today. Can you tell us something unique about your environment as a youth or maybe a prominent experience you had growing up that still has a big impact on you right now? Yeah, I would say early on it was about um, being, I was this little seed that my grandfather watered with uh, the waters of awesomeness or the waters of possibility. My grandfather was an absolute legend and everybody around him felt uh, this love and this kind of glaring presence. Uh, He had two speeds, like tremendous and magnificent. And I, (laughs) I say that like, like for instance, uh, he started the Long Island uh, nautical heritage society and he would rent these like pirate ships. And I don't know how he did it, but I have memories of being able to steer a pirate ship wheel that was like wider than my wingspan of my arms, you know, and looking up at my captain of a grandfather with his captain hat saying like starboard and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, is this real or is this a dream? You know? So I would say that that was a huge influence. And then also I was uh, blessed to discover music at a young age so it was cello, then piano lessons. And then once I started electric bass, it was like, you know, sky was the limit. I joined bands and toured as a bassist for a long time. So it's somewhere between being, uh, you know, kind of influenced by a hyper positive person and being a performer and being a musician. I'd say that those were the early stages for me. Was there overlap? Was your grandpa influential in getting you into music or was oh. that done separately through some other awesome teacher or family member yeah you know he uh he financed the purchase of a cello that i still have that was made in the year 1740 and i did in no way deserved that cello my skills were just so so right but i was going to major in college a major in cello performance in college and uh there's actually a note uh that i found um you know, a couple of days before I published the full life integration manifesto that you mentioned, the full life integration framework. And you could see it in there that this, uh, this handwritten note from my grandfather saying, I've, I've heard reports about your recent concerts and they sounded excellent. And, you know, I was going to give you my orchestra, my tuxedo to use for orchestra. Alas, I'm too fat and you're too skinny. So here's $200 towards a, a new tuxedo because I had to buy a tuxedo. Uh, so yeah, he was a huge, uh, he was always fanning in the flames in music and taking me to Lincoln Center and Juilliard to watch these world-class musicians perform. I mean, he's a, 
huge, huge part of why I stuck with all this stuff I stuck with. Not to mention the family legacy, you know, through having, you know, he had six kids, I have three, but the way I run my family, um, who I show up as, that's, that's all my grandfather. Who are the other prominent people family-wise in your life at a younger age? Yeah, you know, uh, I'd say my, my dad is a, um, a very driven, very accomplished executive. Uh, he worked all over the world and oversaw 22 countries at some point for this giant corporation. And, you know, his passports are, are so thick that I think like the covers touch in reverse uh, because they're so, like that, that's how much he traveled. So I think that my dad and, and my mom was also a huge encourager of uh, the arts and later spirituality, which led to, you know, yoga and finding my guru. So there's that. <laughs> but um but yeah, I'd say my, my parents, I was, I was really blessed in, in the family department. Do you have an example of how your parents raised you that you've now passed along to your three kiddos? I'm sure there's tons of examples, but is there something when you think of the signature impact that your parents had and how you've handed that down in the generations, anything in particular come to mind? That's funny. This has been coming up so much over the past few weeks. Um, but I'd say that you know, our families, we have to cut everybody some slack around us because I, I, I truly believe at this point that our families do the best they possibly can with us with what they have to work with, you know? So we might, they might influence us to do something positive because they were negative with us, right? Or they might be in, influenced to do something negative because they were positive with us. But I, I feel like their parenting style is a reflection of what they grew up with. So you know, what, what I do now with my kids is I try to be just kind of the oldest of my wife's four children and be their play pal and be their big toy. But at the same time, I have to be able to snap into dad mode and get stuff done and keep people on time and, and keep people accountable, you know? Uh, and that's always a dance and you never know when you're messing them up. I mean, you're a dad, you know, it's like my, my, my goal is to just not mess them up. Right. But so, so a recent example is that my daughter created this ridiculous Halloween costume. Uh, she's my oldest. She's 13. She, she goes to art school. And she created the musculature for these digigrade legs that have, like, animal fur on them. So she went as kind of a minotaur. Dang. And it was insane. It took some budget. It took some vision. It took a lot of work, right? But, of course, you know, the night before she wears it to school – she asks me to help her hot glue gun all the fur on. So like, I'm complaining, I'm burning all my fingertips. I'm like, why do you want to do this? Are you serious? So I was resisting her vision over and over and over until it got to a point where I realized like, I just got to get used to her leading the way, right? Because she's so much more visionary, creative and further along than I was at her age that I have to be okay with that, you know, within reason. I mean, I can't just like throw money at every, you know, crazy art project, but when I see with where she's taking it. So I, I think my parents in some way, like those two tension points kind of influenced that, you know, to not, to not step into unconscious, like just resist and say no to the child. No, 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 no. Like I got that, like everybody did from their parents on some level, but to stay more on the, you know, grandfatherly level of like, Oh yeah. How's that going to work out? That's crazy enough to maybe work. Like I want to be a part of that, you know? So that's what I'm toying with right now. An active participant in your kids' lives. That's a good place yeah. to be. You, you mentioned uh, having your parents help you turn things that were negatives with them into maybe positives for you. Seems like you're doing the same thing. Have you gone the other direction? Have you seen positive things that your parents were able to handle and that you, through the course of your youth and your, your young life, you turned into something that was negative? You know, I, I think that 
when I was growing up, uh, it was the eighties. A lot of parents get divorced. My parents were divorced. My dad was in Texas and my mom was in Ohio. I was raised in Ohio. So I was a latchkey kid. And when you're a latchkey kid, you have this, uh, beautiful gift of zero supervision between the ages of, or between the times of like three o'clock and seven o'clock when my mom would get home. And we just got into a lot of trouble, you know? And, um, I think what that led me to was kind of maybe being overly protective and, overly structured with my kids on some level. And I look at that as a negative. So I think, you know, kind of finding that sweet spot and we're always experimenting with it, like giving them enough freedom to, you know, my, my daughter has been practicing ukulele like a beast lately and she's getting really good. She's a really good singer. She sings in a band, uh, a band of children called detention. They're pretty awesome. And, uh, she wanted to take her ukulele to school and I've been telling her for weeks, no, 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 it'll get in the way of your studies, you know? And it's like, you know, people that know me from camp or these other places are like, they would never think I would do that, you know, but I got to do that. So then yesterday she finally asked, I said, yeah, take it to school. I want your school to be more fun. I want you to be more creative. And so I think that that some of that latchkey kid freedom kind of inhibits my, uh, hmm. the freedom I my kids. I just want to make sure for people who didn't follow people who know you from camp, you're talking oh, about yeah. Camp Good Life Project, or which is an yeah, adult summer camp? Are you talking about other camps? I run a sweat lodge work camp here in Ohio. No, yeah, I'm talking about Camp Good Life Project. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, Which that's... is amazing. I went for the first time uh, in August this year, and Casey was one of about 420 people. Uh, just an amazing group of adults, playful, having fun but getting deep too. And it's, so my experience of you, I just want to segue real quick too, because I know that you do this with your children, being that uber playful dude, but also being that super mindful guy who is comfortable leading three children or a hundred adults in meditation early in the morning. So there's this, I won't say juxtaposition, but you have many facets to you. And it's really fun to be able to experience those without having them seemingly contradict each other. I, I know you've talked about this in other places before, but for folks who are like, who's this Casey dude? I don't know who he is. Give me a little bit more of, uh, of the backstory. Can you just say a little bit about uh, the sequence of events? Uh, becoming a father is pretty obvious. You and Gail got yeah. together. You created kids. I mean, that's, that's a biological thing. Lots of humans do it. But most humans don't have a serious series of moments where they're like, I need to become a yogi. How did that happen? It's funny you bring that up because at camp, this is a a challenge with my personal brand is that uh, people will experience like a a really profound uh, guided meditation with me at 6 or 6.30 in the morning, as you mentioned. And then later on, I'm dressed as a unicorn yelling in a blowhorn and and getting everyone to dance. Figuratively puking rainbows. Pretty much, pretty much. And they'll say, they'll say, gosh, your brother is so chill and you're not. (laughs) Your identical twin is just so different. They really don't know if it's the same person. And I, and I, and I kind of like that weirdness. I like that tension too. Um, but as my wife was giving birth to our third child in uh, the end of 2011, I was finishing autobiography of a yogi. I was reading it at the time. And uh, people had told me for eight years that I should read that book. And it did hit me like such a bolt of lightning that it was my guru. Um, that there was a, there was a recognition. Um, at this point, I'm, I'm truly convinced from past lives I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm always learning how the guru-disciple relationships work. Relationship works. Uh, Paramahansa Yogananda, who wrote Autobiography of a Yogi, he left his body, um, you know, phys- physical death. He, um, he left his body in 1952. So it's like, how do, you, um, how do you establish this link with a lineage of teachings that is so deeply resonant 
within you that you are willing to take vows, become a Kriyaban yogi, um, meditate, you know, what, how many ever hours it take, uh, hours a week it takes to progress on the path. But yeah, that's basically been my life over the last six years is, um, you know, um, taking vows, um, at the end of 2013 and practicing every Kriya yoga every single day before my kids feet hit the floor. So between like five 30 in the morning and seven in the morning, that's what I do. And it's who I am. What else does it mean to be a Kriyaban yogi? What are mm. the things that you, that you vowed to do the, the covenant that you swore to? Yeah. So I, I walk the householder path. Obviously I'm not going to leave my family and go, you know, into a cave and just uh, become a monk. There are those longings, the more you do it, to spend time on retreats, to spend more and more time in solitude. And I mean, you know, my energy level, you know, it was impossible for me, like it is for all my meditation students to sit still for five minutes at first, you know, but over the course, I've been on that, you know, meditation tip for about 15 years now, and uh, it gets easier and easier. And the more you do it, the more you crave it. So by the time I I took vows, um, let's say that was October of 2013, um, those vows include loyalty to the guru and to the lineage of masters. Um, and that means not teaching those teachings because I am not qualified in any way to do that. I adapt some of those philosophies um, into layman's terms that make them accessible for everybody to help them create the habit like you did. Um, so I turned that into a meditation challenge. And, um, you know, basically I could give people the gift of a meditation habit in 30 days. It took me maybe 10 years to get consistent with it. Right. So I took vows not to share those teachings. Um, but also I took vows to practice Kriya yoga to the best of my ability every single day for the duration of my life. And it's something that, um, all the study and all the practice leading up to it, um, prepared me to do because it's a very serious commitment. You know, like once you, you know, I, I don't want to poo poo people's Kriya yoga, however they get it. But, uh, you know, I've, I've had friends that get, Kriya yoga after going to like a weekend seminar and I asked them to think about, you know, like you're, you're messing with some stuff that's really powerful and it's been around for thousands of years and you might want to work up to it so you could actually mm-hmm. practice it to the level. Cause you don't want to be something you dabble with and then forget about. Right. And you'll How did you know that you were ready. You mentioned that you've yeah. been, uh, you, you read the book in 2011, but you had been on the meditation tips for about 15 years. So this yeah. is going back to about the age of 25 and, um, did you get started with meditation after Yeah, you don't have no. to get into your story about almost losing your life on the operating table when you were <laughs> like, what, 25, 26, was that when you started meditation and then started working your way slowly up to it being ready? Me, it took me years before that. You know, it's like this, uh, when I was 19, I was in a band uh, that played a few hundred shows a year. We toured constantly like five, six nights a week. And I had done that for about a year and a year or so I joined when I was 18, 19 and I had to fly down to Texas to tell my dad, I was going to take another semester off school to stay with the band, you know, and the band wasn't truly going anywhere yet. Like we might get a record deal, but I knew that it was going to be a hor- horrible conversation. I met a woman on that flight. I was so depressed to have this conversation with my father. I was so scared. I met a woman on that flight that told me she was my reincarnated sister. I know this, this is going to sound weird. She was a hairdresser from California, so I wrote it off as that. Oh, this crazy hairdresser from California thinks she's my sister from a past life. Okay, tell me more, right? She said, well, I'll tell you more. You're a musician, and you're on your way to talk to your dad about this like difficult decision you have to make. And so, so she started giving me all these what? tips. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That were uh, stunningly 
intimate and accurate. And then I was looking at my hands to see if it looked like I was a bass player or something, but she knew, she knew me for sure. And uh, she told me at, at that on, during that layover at O'Hare airport in Chicago, that it was my path to be a yogi and to meditate. And it took me years to even listen to that. You know, it was like, cause I was still a skeptical young kid, um, you know, into drinking, doing drugs, playing rock and roll, just into my life at that phase, you know? And I, I was scared of what that conversation truly meant. Right. It wasn't ready for it. So it took me, you know, well into my early thirties to start really experimenting with meditation first in Shavasana on my basement floor in Chicago, falling asleep, big surprise, right. Laying on the ground in the dark and then sitting upright slumped and falling asleep, sitting up and then starting to meditate on the trains, the red line train in Chicago on my commute. And it was just this kind of integrated into the real world, figuring it out every step. And then as I started becoming more serious about it and seeing more benefits, that led me eventually to autobiography of a yogi. And then I I did the at-home lessons through Self-Realization Fellowship. That's Yogananda's organization. I did those from the beginning of 2012 to the end of 2013 when I took vows. It usually takes people a year if they do it hardcore. Mm. And it took me a year and 10 months. And that was about as hardcore as I could do it. And uh, ever since then, I just, uh, once I took my vows and I was ready, I just practiced the best of my ability. It's crazy how you can hear things hundreds of times, thousands of times over uh-huh. 10 years, 15 years before right. you act on it. I had, I had heard so many people tell me, Joel, this meditation thing, probably a good idea for you too. And I was like, ah, meditation. Okay. I mean, I get it on an intellectual level, but I'm just, I'm not feeling it. And then... Just for people who don't know, I mean, you were my entry point. This was yeah. maybe July 2014. I took your uh, five-day... You had, at that point in time on your website, This Epic Life, you had uh, a five-day video series to yeah. get your meditation habits started. And it was on day four where I was like, okay, this dude's legit, and I see where this is going, and I kind of like it. It was still painful, and it still is pretty painful, but I had over two years of uninterrupted meditation for starting at five minutes, slowly climbing my way up to 30 minutes. But yet up until that point, I just, I had heard it so many times. Do you have a way, are you tuned into things more where you hear about something new or something different and you don't need to hear about it a hundred times from 50 different people before you're like, yes, that thing, I need more of that or I want to start it. Well, it's, it's interesting because you know, one of the quotes I live by that I probably shared in that video series that I use with all my meditation students is, um, and by the way, I created that because I didn't want, I wanted people to be able to cut some of the corners I did and avoid nearly dying of stress-related illness. You know, that's my dharma that I want to pay forward is like, I feel like I can distill my journey and what I learned to get my habit in 30 days for people and it tends to work, which is great. And it's a blessing. But I give it away for free because that was given to me by all my teachers. Right. But one of the quotes that I probably shared in that was Pima Chodron, Buddhist nun, amazing author, teacher. And she said, nothing ever goes away till we learn what it needs to teach us that the wisdom and the medicine that we're searching for in this lifetime will drip on us like we're a slab of granite and it will eventually wear its way through that granite because water always wins. You know what I mean? And um, sometimes the things that we resist the most, like slowing the hell down before you could speed up, is what you need the most. And that's why, you know, people told me to read autobiography for, of a yogi for eight years. It's why people probably told you, you know, Joel, you have your, you have the wiggles, like you got great energy, man. But you, if you, if you have that calm center, you know, 
it'll, everything will change. Right. And, um, it slowly leads you to the path. But yeah, I'd like to say that I, I see things at face value once and say, yeah, I need to do that. I'll do it. And sometimes we have that gift, but for the most part, um, all this habit creation is about, and I study this stuff a lot. I give it to all my students and all my clients. Um, it's about people will adapt it, will adopt it when they are truly ready for it. When you're truly ready, the guru shows up, the knowledge shows up and you surrender to the process. Most times we have the arms crossed like, yeah, if I truly needed that, I would be doing it by now, you know? And I have that with a million things like stopping, you know, my Halloween candy shame spiral after my kids go Halloween, um, mm. right? You like sugar. And I know you've conquered that one or messed up. No, 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 haven't. But you, you've experimented with it though, right? With like conquering the Halloween oh, candy shame spiral? Or, or no. That still happens sometimes. I still, like you, drive by a Dairy Queen and be like, ooh, am I going to stop for a Snickers Blizzard or not? And it's like the biggest decision of my life in that moment, deciding, am I going to get a DQ Blizzard right now? I know we both have a fondness for DQ. So you you have these moments. Obviously, you're human. As far as I know, you're not a robot. What I'm realizing more and more, especially after a week, like just coming off a retreat with a bunch of my clients, is like, what people respond to when you teach is your humanity, not your like holier than thou soul example, whatever. So I talk about my, I call it my filthy self-serve habit and it's, or no, it's not self-serve, soft serve, my filthy soft serve. serve. Yes. Self-serving soft serve as much as you can. It is self-serve. Yeah. I just slather it all over my face. and chest. <laughs> in, the, uh, in the summer months on Tuesdays, by by Tuesday, Wednesday, I start getting the Jones for DQ and I got to listen to that Jones, right? But at the same time, if that Jones makes my body feel like crap or in any way affects my meditation habit the next day, I mean, that's why I cut out alcohol five years ago. It wasn't because I was, I was an alcoholic. It was getting in the way of the meditation. So like that water going through granite thing, meditation will slowly consume most of my day over the course of my lifetime. And I'm excited about that. You know, I meet these devotees out in, you know, Encinitas, California, where autobiography was written. And they spend most of their hours of their day, six hour meditations and stuff, but they feel so freaking joyful. They don't need to go to the DQ or to the bowl of Halloween candy for that. You know, I'm at a stage in my life where I'm happy to, and there's no judgment in it, but I know it's days are numbered. Yeah, that's cool. Well, one of the nice things too is you mentioned some people who meditation is the pillar. That's the foundation of everything. And that's how they joyfully choose to use most of their time on this earth. But for you, as big as it is, I know it's just one facet. And one of the fascinating things about you for me is your concept of full life integration, which I promised in my intro that we would touch on. Seems like a pretty good time because we could talk about mindfulness and meditation and spirituality all day long. But there's a lot more. So just to give people kind of the the 101 of what you mean, or when I reference full life integration, what does that mean to you? Um, that we are infinitely more powerful than the, our separate pieces parts. And I've done a lot of research over this in the last five years. I laid out all of this in this manifesto that's on my site, the full life integration manifesto, is it comes down to five what I call non-negotiables. And these are sacred life ingredients that cannot be removed or substituted. But if you're expanding in each of these areas over the course of your lifetime, there is no limit to your happiness, fulfillment, or success. And they are soul. We already covered that one. Soul, vitality, or how we treat our body, uh, family, or family relationships, family of origin, family of design, all of our friendships, all of our clients, all of our relationships, art, or creative expression, 
and then our work. And what I found, especially just coming off this, it was a full life integration retreat I just ran in, in Encinitas. How I lay it out is this, is that most, part, most of us default, especially in Western cultures, we default to letting work, just one of the non-negotiables, determine if our life is successful or not. So that's tied to how much money we make, what our status and station is, what our title is, what our influence is. Our work is this, it becomes this black sun at the center of this little solar system that has the power to drag us around by the hair and say when our life sucks or when it's awesome. You know, we watched people do this. I was a salesperson for years, right? So it's like when our sales are up, it's like on top of the world, right? Like Mm -hmm. being in front of the boat, right? But when sales are down, it's like, I'm a piece of Like we confuse our net worth with our self-worth. So in full life integration, you move that, that black sun out into orbit where it belongs at the end of this little solar system. And you have the soul at the center and through, you know, self-knowledge through aligning yourself to your higher self, your little body to your higher self. And then the universal good, you move out into how you treat your body, how you treat your family, how you, what you're here to create in this world. Then finally, when you get to work, work benefits from and becomes the power amplifier for all of this that comes before it. And I would say that is, you kind of get a sense of how powerful that can be if you have all those things fully aligned and fully integrated. One of my teachers on the business tip, Charlie Thomas, this amazing businessman who helped build Yahoo, his mantra was always speed comes from alignment, speed comes from alignment. So if you want to compound revenue or compound growth of an organization, you get everything aligned, the culture, the people, their roles, everybody in the right seat, and then speed will come from that. And it's the same way at the individual level. So that's full life integration. I'm just thinking for the first time the Pentagon that you have starting and the, and the order in which you mentioned them, soul, vitality, family, creativity, and work. Are those intentionally in order? Like you have layers and starting at the soul level and then building up to, I've I've never thought about a starting point. I just thought like, these are the five things you should try to integrate these five things as much as you can. I'm glad you brought that up because it took me five years to figure out that that is the right sequence you know, one of the things that, you know, I I do a lot of teaching and preaching about self-care and I always say it's all about consistency and not duration at first, you know, because people are like, oh, I maxed out at, you know, 500 pounds for 20 minutes or I meditated for 90 minutes or, you know, whatever. And it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with consistency. And um, what I noticed when when I released the manifesto, I had a vision while I was meditating. I know this sounds ethereal, but the more yogi I become, I realized that all this stuff is divinely guided on some level. But I discovered my mission in full life integration in April of 2012. I had a sabbatical from work and I kept my normal business hours because I didn't want to leave my wife with my kids because she'd want to murder me. Right. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to have this like spiritual quest, but still stay at home. So I just stayed up in my attic office at the time and meditated most of the day, journaled, no technology and went running and just, you know, deeply introspective. I had the vision of, of full life integration, which was the Pentagon with the, you know, rock hand with the, uh, Oh yeah. Uh, let's not forget the rock hand, the lightning yeah. bolts too. So the lightning bolts hitting the pinky and it was soul vitality, family art and work and those, but, but my, my interpretation at the time with those were mine, they weren't necessarily universal. Mm. 
So I started doing that as a workshop later that year uh, in my own company and other companies. And I would have people define their non-negotiables. And sometimes their non-negotiables would totally not jive. It'd be like, I love long showers and hanging with my parents. So if I'm going to integrate, it'd kind of be weird to shower with my parents, right? I'm like, yeah, that would be weird. What I'm I'm finding is everyone's non-negotiables rolled up to one of those five broad categories, soul, vitality, family, art, and work. And the other part of self-care that I preach, so like I talked about consistency, the other one is sequence. And when you have meditation first and then you have running and then you have, you know, family time in there, something like that, by the time you come back to work, you know, you take a shower before you hit the desk, you feel so aligned and supercharged. It's like, is my work, my art or vice versa? It all blends at that point. And you realize that this is one big art project, my family or, or, or all these things integrate together into like one spiritual practice, one universal family, one, you know, sense of duty in my work. It's so yeah, the, the sequence now is everything. I I feel like I I tripped on something in, in April, 2012 that I didn't quite understand. It took me five years. How many integration points did you hit uh, oh. on your retreat this past weekend? Your family wasn't with you, although you're not just talking about your biological family. You're talking about your family of choice and your friends. Did yeah. you hit all five in retreat well, mode, Casey? Yeah. So, so what you were, uh, you said something interesting. You meant my five non-negotiables because it's one, five, and ten. One lens statement. So you create a lens statement, which, which is this powerful statement of virtues. I had them do that. Five non-negotiables that we covered in depth. Yeah, we hit them all hard, core. <laughs> Soul, vitality, family, art, and work. And that was the basis of the content. But then the 10 is what I what I released this year that I haven't had a chance to work on since the manifesto, which is there's 10 integration points. So the integration points are the weaving together of each of those five, five non-negotiables. Uh, so how you could bring your soul into your vitality, soul into your family, soul into your art, soul into your work, and so on. And, um, and we did our best to get through all those 10, but yeah, the non-negotiables were really covered. And, and what happens when you achieve full life integration in the context of a group, you know, it's happened at camp good life project for me each time I'm the MC there. And I get to go be this like hyper version of myself, you know? So if it's meditation, it's meditation for a couple hundred people. If it's, you know, um, you know, shenanigans and unicorns, it's that in front of 400 people. But when you're fully integrated, you feel like all of those things are expressing through you at once. And it's a beautiful thing because time expands. You don't feel like you're putting on a mask in any one of those things. You're, you're Mm. incredibly unapologetically authentic and transparent. And that's what was cool to see with my guests was that as we had them to had them design their integrated life, but then also practice it while we were there, 6am meditation, head out to the beach for yoga and in front of the waves run down the beach for vitality, come back, drink nothing but smoothies and organic plant-based food, um, then go into creative expression, art, and so on. They wanted to, just like as I expected, they'd want to start with work. Like, what am I here for and how is this going to affect my job? You know, they want to cover that on day one, right? And I had them punt that until the end of the, the retreat, right? And by the time we get back to this burning question around work, they had answered all their questions and then some mm-hmm. because they'd done the sequence of the non-negotiables. 
but it's not necessarily sequential in that you're only doing one at a time. This is one, one thing that I want to make clear for folks. Right. Maybe you've already done it. Maybe I haven't interpreted it properly. I know, I know what you're getting at. When we talk about five non-negotiables and integrating them with each other. So I'll give some examples from my life. So I like, I've just started this and it's raw and it's not working all that great, but I'm trying anyway. Meditating with my family on Saturday morning after breakfast, just for two minutes. I've got a seven-year-old and a four-year-old son, so they're not in for, a, <laughs> for an hour-long meditation. But that is combining soul and family. Um, finding interesting humans to play with after school. I walk my son Grant home from school and that's family time, but it's also playful time and creative time where maybe we'll create a game with some neighborhood kids. Maybe we'll just find cool humans to talk to in the neighborhood, like 95-year-old Mildred across the street who's awesome. So these are some examples like doing a silent retreat, which is something that I plan to do next year that is hitting a couple of different things. That is work for me, and also soul. And based on how I'll be treating my body during that time period, vitality as well. So you have all these different things that maybe during the course of a day or during the course of an hour, you might be doing one or the other. But the goal is over a period of time, you have these different things that you're potentially all doing at once that are integrated. Dude, you should, first of all, you should teach my class. Second of all, if you're meditating on your Saturday, can you adopt me? Would that be weird? Could I be like your oldest son? I'm uh, pretty sure you can't adopt somebody who's older than you. But I, I am way balder than you, and I've got more gray hairs in my beard, so let's give it a try. I'll look into it. But anyway, um, to have a dad that does that stuff, and it all, all of them start out sloppy at first, sloppy and painful, sloppy and painful. But there's a lot of mythology in our culture right now, especially in the marketing of, of this notion of hacking everything. And I've never been interested in hacking anything. Like I want to pursue mastery in things. And how you do that is you, you start out by being willing to suck for as long as it takes right? <laughs> until you're proficient. Like, like we talked about my meditation journey. That was like a failure for many years until, you know, I'm kind of figuring it out and I still feel like I have a long way to go. But wh- how you described it, what I picture is you get the soul baseline going, right? And then you stack on vitality and kind of kind of build these habits in. Then you move up into family. And, and at first, all my clients, including me, it's all chaos. It's all working around. But what you're describing, which I love so much, is that you're, you're, what you're doing is you're paring down so you have a highly intentional life. You have a highly intentional, well-designed existence where it's like it's not just some ordinary walk to get your kid from school or walk home it has the potential to be an extraordinary adventure, you know, and that's my grandfather's influence again, which is let's make the ordinary extraordinary mm-hmm. through high intention. Right. And, um, and also to the other side of that is that life is plenty complex. It's crushingly complex at times. And this is a yogic principle that, you know, life is divided into what we call Maya or delusion where it's like positive and negative polarities. It's political unrest. It's, you know, a lot of chaos out there. How do we navigate and simplify and I know you're all about the simple rev and the simplification of things. And the way I could do it, do that is to just distill it down to those five core elements. Nothing matters outside of family hmm. or soul, vitality, family, art, and work. However, each of those are their own massive categories, but what they mean to each of us on the individual level is very specific. Is that I just point? realized that we kind of skipped, well, didn't skip over something important. You mentioned the lens yeah. statement. That's yeah. the one out of the one, five, and ten. Can we walk back the conversation for a moment? And can you yeah. just explain or maybe even get an example? I know your current lens statement is what most people would think of as super long. 
I remember at the workshop that you did at Camp GLP, you showed your original lens statement from five years ago versus your current one. I'm like, whoa, this dude really beefed it up. The lens? Yeah, a little little bit about the lens statement, please. Yeah, the uh, glad you asked about it. It's um, it's kind of the, the, the precursor to the full-length integration framework in that our lens or how we see the world and see ourselves in it, that has the potential to enhance or diminish all we experience. So the intentionality of that statement can upgrade everything in your outward experience. And that's what I took directly from my grandfather. That, that section of the manifesto basically talks about how he taught me to believe in everything and everyone all the time. It's expansive energy, right? And the, the, the process is I have my, my clients uh, circle a set of virtues, not values. Values are great, but virtues are capital V, old school, you know, Greek epic virtues. Mm-hmm. And then they, they weave language around those. So what, what, what Joel was saying that I love is that my, my first um, incarnation of this was, you know, a couple sentences and I have it written down right here. It says, you know, so this is beginning of 2012 and I was putting the framework together. Uh, it said, I joyfully expect everything to work out. I use my creativity to inspire and entertain others. I consciously pursue excellence. I have fun. And that's what I do every day. And that at the time was a big step up from what I was, you know, I was like a pissed off salesman most of the time, disgruntled dad, not spending enough time with my kids, still drinking a little bit, like still just kind of unsure about what I was here to do and how to do it. But that took me into the next phase of my career. So the lens statement probably doubled in length because it got like more highly intentional And last year when I left my corporate career and just went solely out on my own while creating my dream house, I had to really, I feel really step up the lens statement to deliver upon just this much bigger, like the stakes were higher. So I, I, what I've been teaching people lately is that the lens, the lens needs to upgrade and expand in relation to the demands of life. So it, 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 expands by demand. So that's why my lens statement now is kind of a beast, but it's a beast that activates every cell in my body and makes me feel like a warlock. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what you're doing when you're running on the trails around your house, listening to your lens statement overlaid over what, like ambient? What what do you do? Binaural? I I forget what the... Yeah, they're binaural, ambient beats. There you Uh, go. Thank you. Hemisync music. Hemisync is the best production of this type of music but it's for my ears only and um what it does is i used to chant it to myself mentally while running down the trails and that had its own profound effects you know it's basically priming it's mindset priming and it's audio conditioning we are more likely to believe our own voices if we hear it repeatedly. That's why, you know, transcendental meditation is all about the mantra. I mean, this stuff's been proven over thousands and thousands of years. And I've listened to other priming stuff from like, you, you name it, Tony Robbins, John Assaraf, uh, Brian Tracy, on and on and on. But it's nothing like writing your own language, giving yourself directives in your, mm-hmm. in your voice. And then that's the integration point is the first integration point that is extraordinarily powerful is soul vitality. So when you're going on a four mile run after a certain amount of meditation with binaural beats in nature, in hearing your own voice, reminding you my energy and love is a juggernaut creating ripples of impact in so many beautiful lives being a yogi householder is the center of my universe i command gravitas with others to the level i demand it myself the proof of my work is forging ruthless self-knowledge i'm the last gatekeeper so it's my responsibility to share my wisdom and experience in the service of all organizations you get the idea that you start believing that after a while and 
it was so crucial last year that I not only rewrite it, rewrite the script, but that I start believing it because I had a tall order. I had no income committed to a hundred thousand dollar renovation on top of buying the house, no health benefits for my children. Like the stakes were high. And it was like, uh, uh, you know, where do you begin? And you begin with what you teach, right? So I sat down, I redid all of my material that I teach others to do. I meditated more. I redesigned everything and that's, you know, your outward experience starts mirroring the inward experience. Dang dude. Well, you figured out a number of things out, but I know there's lots more to decide and there's lots of uncertainty. Do you have a particularly large question that's dwelling up in you right now? Or you're just like, I have no freaking idea, but it's a question that's worth asking. Yeah. You know, right now where I am is um, we're always on a bridge between where we are and who we, who we must become. And what I mean, is I call that the chasm. There's this chasm to cross. Like there's the things we want to experience in our lives. And we have friends that do some of this stuff. So like my friend and mentor, Jonathan Fields, is like a best-selling author, creator of camp, has a gigantic email list. Like he's a very admirable, noble dude, puts incredible stuff out into the world, right? But it's not enough for any of us to want to be Jonathan Fields. He would turn to us and say, like he's been telling me for years, be you. You figure out you and you do you, right? And so my burning question is always around, you know, how do I get from where I am to where I must be? And what we do is like, we kind of build these safe little bridges. So the bridge out of corporate for me was to say, okay, organizational consulting around culture. I had an award-winning culture that I helped build at my last company. I'm taking that in other companies. And I love that work. Don't get me wrong, but that work is not my work on the soul level. Like I'm here to be a spiritual teacher. And so we see a guy like a Wayne Dyer or some other archetype and we, or like a, you know, Oprah, you know, you name it. And we think, how do we become Oprah or how do we become? And the, the question isn't, it isn't possible for any of us to become Oprah. There's only one or, or, you know, or you name it. But the question for me now is how do I self-actualize as a spiritual teacher in a way that not only provides for my family, but blows it all through the roof, like bigger than corporate, bigger than these other things. Like I'm trying to remove all limits based on the stories I've told myself in the past. And if the last five years are any indication, it's absolutely possible because I'm sitting in a room that I didn't even know existed. That was one mile from my last house that um, it seems preposterous that I would uh, take on purchasing this in the context of not having an income, but that's exactly what happened. And a miracle of miracles 18 months later, there's actually more money in my account than there was five years ago when I was making, I don't know, three or four X what I was making. So like none of this stuff makes sense on paper (laughs) until you experiment. And uh, it baffles me more than anybody, but until you experiment and get highly intentional. And I I think that that's the question that comes up for me is just how, you know, and then what if you've been preparing for this moment your entire life? Oh, that's that's a question that you've, you posed that's seriously that's one of the questions that i ask myself somewhat frequently too that i heard oh, uh, okay you can't see this everybody dude's holding up a workbook from his retreat the audacious question what if i've been preparing for this my entire life gosh i love that question i love that so much so that's that's an activator and the activation is when you feel increasingly unprepared in this high paced volatile uncertain world and you feel increasingly unprepared to, you know, parent your children while you're preparing to give a speech, you know, and or walking on stage and you don't know what you're going to say or anything like that. 
you you sit and you get silent for a second and and the the question that life is asking you your lizard brain is asking you is you know who are you to do this who are you to do that you know you're not this or you're an imposter or whatever and you 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 say shut the hell up and you ask the question what if I've been preparing for this my entire life? And all of a sudden it's like, you feel like Voltron inside. And you start realizing that all these seemingly random events have prepared you, have refined you beautifully to step forth and to be that for people and to be that for yourself. And it's, that's a game changer question. I have not found a better question to ask myself. Hmm. Well, I'm glad that we threw that one out there too. Is there anything else that you'd like to discuss that we haven't touched on yet? No, I'd say the... Or that you'd like people to know? Yeah, I'd say the focus right now is on finding my next... Earlier this year and last year, like I mentioned, is I was was doing more organizational consulting and I still have a lot of those projects kind of hanging out there and I I love that work, but I want to start building more and more of a... uh, just an army of thoughtful, badass, emerging leader type clients on the coaching tip. So if there's people that are interested in my one-to-one work, I ask them to check that out at thisepiclife.com. Uh, that's my, that coming off a retreat, I realized that that is, that's my mission right now. At first, when I went on business on my own, I, was, I thought I was never a one-to-one solution. I was always a one-to-many solution. And what I realized, it's like, first of all, the brand has to be me. And now the brand is me, but it's like either organizations or individuals and what I really deeply love is, is transforming individuals because I know what it did for me. And then that work always comes back to you, you know? So that's what I ask people to check out. So this epiclife.com. Got it. Yep. All right. There'll be lots of people heading that way. Dude, thank you so much for doing your time bender thing with me. As much as you can <laughs> uh, warp time around you, uh, I'm super grateful. And you're very generous with your time and uh, insight uh, and stories yeah, and enthusiasm. Well, you're a freaking, uh, I love your podcast, Joel, and I love everything about you. I love the way you move. I could go on, but you're kind of like a snake charmer. You know, it's like your job to kind of play the flute and then we all just kind of slither and dance like Axl Rose. And, uh, but you bring out a real magic in people and I want to thank you for doing that. And, uh, like I said, I was really looking forward to the conversation and, and what was delivered. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Did Casey do for you some of what he's done for me over the past few years? Can you understand why I love this guy so dang much? Now, if you're tempted to craft your own lens statement, create your own set of non-negotiables, find your own life, full life integration points, or do things like start the meditation habit, Casey can be your guy. You'll find links to all the stuff we spoke about, topic timestamps, takeaways, and more in the show notes at joelzeslovsky.com slash S-A-S-M-1-2-3. Don't worry about supporting me or this show after this specific episode. I just have one request. Go pick up on Casey's trail of unicorn rainbows across the internet. Perhaps you'll start at thisepiclife.com and really start to get into the things that he's into. Gosh, it's contagious. Enjoy him, share his stuff, and think of me next time you're wondering who to support in this rad world we exist in. You've just listened to the Smart and Simple Matters podcast with Joel Zaslavsky. Now go simplify something, hug someone, or get your sexy spreadsheet on.